The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Zendo. For more information, visit villagezendo.org. So, um, so wonderful to be here with you all. I, um, I usually don't come on Sundays. I'm, I'm in Western Massachusetts and uh, I sit with Oxbow Zen on Sundays. And so when I give a talk, it will usually be Thursday. And so here I am. And there's a whole bunch of uh, people that I don't know. I mean, there's a number of people I do know, and it's it's wonderful to see you all. But there's actually like new people, new to me. And uh, so welcome, all of you. Maybe you've all been sitting with the Village Zendo for a long time, but um, I'm really happy to kind of make your acquaintance this way and to say hello to some old friends. Um, and... Uh, Around here in, in Western Massachusetts, it's um, still like an early spring feeling. Um, there's still, there's some green happening on the grasses, um, but the trees, um, while they have sort of some uh, buds and the beginnings of like the maple or sort of all this red haze, but um, mostly it feels like this very in-between uh, winter and uh, real spring. And so it's easy to to think of this moment as just like the first step in what's going to come next. But actually, uh, it's beautiful out there right now. The sunlight is coming in um, very um, warmly through the eastern window of my house. And um, there are little daffodils coming up. And it just, it's a lovely time. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, and as we know, today is Easter. And so for anybody that um, uh, celebrates that holiday, I wish you a happy Easter. Um, and, uh, you know, I just kind of know this is a time when people that, that do observe this holiday go to mass. I'm kind of remembering time in New York, wandering around um, the East Village on Sunday and people were leaving um, their mass. Everybody was carrying lilies. And so it's this very um, heartwarming um, time, I think. Um, on a more secular level, um, there are bunnies, you know, and eggs and uh, children running around and, and hunting for these things. And, and uh, it's fun. That's what I remember about it, um, is it being a fun time. Um, in, uh, in France, though, they don't do bunnies. Uh, apparently, um, at the beginning of this whole uh, season that started actually 40 days ago, all the bells leave town and they fly off to Rome and there's no more tolling anymore. And on Easter, the bells come back and the bells are what drops the eggs um, around in people's um, yards. And so both of these uh, stories have sort of the egg as this very um, alchemical uh, symbol of wholeness, of of renewal, no beginning, no end. We don't know which one came first, right? Was it the chicken or the egg? Um, and also I like to think about the egg as just being like a bodhisattva food, right? Think about all, all the ways that we use eggs and all the ways that eggs enrich our lives, right? Whether it's an omelet or it's a bechamel or whether it's a base of a medicine or 
whatever. It's countless ways that the egg is just this useful food without really having to do anything just by being itself. So Easter is, is you know, has many themes, I think, but for the purposes of this talk, um, it's a time uh, of suffering and then loss, grief, and then a relief. And uh, when I signed up to give the talk uh, and started working on this talk, I actually didn't realize I was gonna be giving it on Easter. And so it's interesting because these were actually the themes of my talk. Um, and the reason why uh, these were the themes of my talk was because I started working on it right on the anniversary of my mother's uh, passing five years ago. And, um, and so on the day I started working on it, I lit a candle for her, wrote, um, looked at some photographs and felt all these emotions of grief um, and missing her kind of coming up very powerfully. And, uh, and she had been uh, ill for many years with a very debilitating and very sad illness. Um, and that included an ongoing um, decline with her capacity to remember. She had a lot of memory loss and it was difficult. Um, it was definitely difficult. And so when she died, um, I mostly felt relief, which is a very, uh, not how I normally had thought of how we respond when somebody is um, ill and dying. And that may be something that you have encountered in your life too. If you have somebody that passes away um, when they've been in pain or they've been suffering for a long time or you've been caretaking, um, you can have this kind of confusing other feeling come up um, that we can judge, right? I kind of judge myself like, whoa, I'm not supposed to be thinking it's good that my mother passed away, right? Um, but I did. Um, and so it was kind of a strange combination of feelings. And then afterwards, there's just, um, as you may know, if you've dealt with this in your own life, there's just a lot of logistics, right? There's estates that need to be settled and documents that need to be signed. And then if you have any kind of like funeral or memorial service, you're in there and you're planning it. And this just seemed like it went on forever. And so uh, I didn't really have a chance to kind of just stop and really grieve during that time either. And then in this particular case, the pandemic hit um, and suddenly um, being aware of all the people who were in nursing homes the way my mother was, who suddenly couldn't be visited by their family or who were in hospitals and couldn't have those final um, moments in person with family member. And, and maybe some people here are, are the family of those people. And I can only imagine how really um, upsetting and really traumatic that must have been. And so for the next few years, uh, it was also like, thank goodness she's not alive right now. Thank goodness she passed away before and she's not uh, in her nursing home right now, not wondering why can't I see my daughter? Why can't I see my family? We missed all of that. And so it is that this was the year, really the first year that none of that was present for me. And I could just really be 
with that feeling of grief and loss. And at the same time, almost like the same moment that I am lighting the candle for my mother, uh, I get a phone call from my daughter who tells me that a long friend of the family also passed away on that, that day. And this person, this woman named Marty, um, is, uh, was, is the mother of um, my one of my daughter's best friends. And this um, child was born on the exact same day as my daughter. They went to the same um, grade school, the same high school, actually the same college. They're living in the same state now. They've been best friends um, for over 25 years. And Marty, of course, I um, knew through all of that. And even though she and I weren't like close friends, she was, she was somebody, you know, that I found to be kind and generous and a loving mother and a loving support person for my own daughter and just a really beautiful human being who also um, passed away um, from a similar kind of illness as my mother was. Um, memory loss. And so we have um, two children who are now adults, and one of whom um, doesn't have a mother in their body anymore, and one of them does, right? And there we are with this kind of fundamental question of reality. Now, what I noticed um, when I was uh, going through all of this, it was that uh, I I had what I would call, you know, I was experiencing grief, but actually they were very different feelings, right? And I've already said how the grief that I felt when my mother passed away was not the same as the grief that then I felt five years later, or maybe even three years later. Grief I felt um, at Marty's passing was not the same as the grief I felt at my mother's own passing. And we use the same word and we think we're talking about the same thing, but actually, it's not the same thing at all. Uh, and it's not the same on the first year as it is on the third year, you know? And we can say, I miss her, or I wish I could show her these daffodils, or we can remember an incident of the past. And each of those moments really is its own experience at that time. And grief can arise from, from different um, triggers, we could say, for lack of a better word, different responses to the moment, okay? So they could, it can come because, you know, this is what's happening right now. I'm looking at the body or I'm seeing the photograph, um, learning the news. Um, and it can also come because we're having a response to a memory that arises or stories that somebody tells us. Um, so the, so the, um, the impetus for the grace can be very different. And so this leads into um, the thing I really want to kind of grapple with with this talk is just um, this whole question of memories. So memories, of course, are thoughts, right? And thoughts um, can be about uh, an experience that we had in the past. Um, they can be ideas that we have when we're thinking a concept through, or maybe we're planning something, or we're, we're thinking about a, a piece of work, artwork, or a, uh, something we read, and we're contemplating in some kind of um, more or less intellectual 
fashion. And thoughts can also be fantasies, right? Imagining things of the future. And these can, all of these can be things that we either like, we don't like, we're attracted to, not attracted to. And we know that all of these thoughts um, are not real, right? They're just going on in our mind. But the thing that I think makes uh, memories particularly uh, interesting to look at is because we think that they're real, right? We have them because of something that happened, right? It's a real event, okay, assumably. A real event that happened at some point, we have this memory, and so we believe that this memory is true. Now, we may also do that with some of our ideas, right? We, we have a, an opinion or an ideal. We've analyzed the world that's going on politically or a work of art, and we say, I've got it. I understand it. This is true. Um, but I think it's a little bit easier to step back from those things, at least for me, um, and say, okay, well, maybe, maybe it's partially true, <laughs> you know, or maybe, maybe it's not even true at all. I don't know if it's true. But the memories, on the other hand, like that happened, and, and I think it's true. But the fact is, uh, if, we, if we consider this, um, we don't always remember. We, first of all, we don't remember everything, and we don't remember everything about anything that happened. And we only remember it um, from the perspective of our own experience, right? So my memory is gonna be different from your memory of the exact same event. And I think uh, probably any of us who have gotten into conversations with family members about you know, some incident that happened when we were a child, um, certainly I have plenty of stories where I can say to my brother, huh, like you think it was like that? Well, that's not how I remember it at all. I remember it completely differently. Um, so the memory very much depends upon the person um, who's having the memory. And the other thing about memory um, is it's not fixed, right? So if I'm having that conversation with my brother and he tells me his experience, now my own memory has been enlarged and it takes in this new information. And so the memory itself changes. And I can tell you that there are um, memories that I have um, that I don't even know if there's something I experienced or they've just been told to me over the years, okay? Um, but I think that they happened to me. And our memories actually are not separated from all the other memories that we have been going on in our mind, right? We may narrow it down to a specific incident, but it forms a kind of web um, within our mind of a whole pantheon, so to speak, of memories. So, Using more um, Buddhist language around this, um, we could say, well, memory is a result of our minds clinging to a certain uh, event in the past, and it gives the illusion of permanence. Um, memory is a part of the process that we have of constructing ourselves, right? Creating a narrative of who we are and what happened. And our memory kind of solidifies time in a way that's not real, right? In fact, we know that all these things um, are impermanent. So the memories can be lost, altered, or gained. So in our practice, we're trying to step back from all of that uh, and say, well, none of this is real. And yet the interesting thing for me about memories is that memories are also what give my life richness and depth and meaning, right? My memories are precious to me. 
And I would ask all of you, like, do you want to give up your memories? Do you want to just drop all your memories and not and go about the rest of your life without a memory? Well, I think that this is a, can be a little bit confusing. You know, Geshe led us in a chant of the Heart Sutra this morning, and we chanted, with no hindrances of the mind, no hindrance, therefore no fear, far beyond deluded thoughts, this is nirvana, right? So, so what is that saying? You know, when my mother was losing her memory, um, I, uh, it's true, uh, a new kind of childlike person emerged from that. Not the same as my old mother at all. And it had a really beautiful quality to it. Um, so it's, it's not that it was all what I would say bad. And yet what was gone was her, her intelligence, her own sense of her history, all of her relationships were sort of ending. And in the end, she was not able to express her full capacity for life. And she was not able to give to others or really engage with the world. So how do we understand memory, you know, as hindrances or as something helpful? What, what, what are they? How, where, where do they fit in this whole, um, whole web? Is the Heart Sutra telling us that we have to eliminate all of these things? Well, I think we instinctively know, no, of course not. I think the Heart Sutra and the way it gets a, a little, can be a little confusing in the way we chant it is it's really talking about deluded thoughts, right? What are deluded thoughts? Deluded thoughts are thoughts that reinforce this idea that we have from the Heart Sutra that form is not emptiness and emptiness is not form. That's the delusion that we're trying to drop through our practice. I was uh, rereading Enkyo Roshi's um, commentary on the Heart Sutra for this talk um, called A Winter Session. And she talks about those hindrances of the thoughts and, and points out that it's not the thoughts themselves that are the hindrances, but it's like the layer that we add on, the thoughts about the thoughts. And that could be the woe is me. Isn't this such a terrible thing that's happening to me or my family? Or it can be the insistence that this is the way it happened, my way. Right? So the memory or the thought is not the problem. The grief that we experience is not the problem. So I wanna take a look at this um, through one of, um, the stories that we have in our Zen tradition. It's not actually a koan, but it's its in sort of one of the stories that we're very familiar with. Um, and it's about Daishan Zangqian um, and his encounter with uh, an old woman, uh, a tea lady. So this is uh, Tokusan in the Japanese um, uh, uh, interpretation of his name. And he's uh, he's a scholar. Um, he's, I guess, brilliant. Uh, he lives in the North and he is an expert on the Diamond Sutra. And he has spent his life thus far writing commentaries and interpretations and grappling with the wisdom of the Diamond Sutra. But he's heard recently about this, what he would say, a perversion of Buddhism. It's called Chan, it's in the South. And uh, these people don't seem to understand the Diamond Sutra at all, okay? These people seem to be saying that actually you can realize the mind and you, the mind itself is Buddha. And this 
you know, is not his understanding of the Diamond Sutra. So he decides he's going to pack himself up and go to the South and put everybody um, straight on this matter. Okay. So uh, he, uh, he takes his journey and as he gets to the South, um, he's hungry, he needs refreshments and he comes across an old woman selling tea and rice cakes. The woman points to his bundle that he's carrying. He says, what are all those books, monk, that you're carrying? He says, these are commentaries on the Diamond Sutra. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I kind of imagine him to be a little bit sort of arrogant and full of himself. Um, the old woman says, well, I have a question for you then. If you can answer it, uh, you can buy some rice cakes and tea from me. But if not, you're going to have to go somewhere else to get your refreshments. She says, I've heard that in the Diamond Sutra, it says, past mind is ungraspable, present mind is ungraspable, and future mind is ungraspable. So what mind do you wish to refresh with these rice cakes, O oh monk? Well, he couldn't answer, he was speechless. So she sends him on his way and he ends up uh, going to Longtan or um, Ryutan. And uh, there he has an awakening. But I wanna just observe that this uh, rice cake woman uh, was the first leg of the awakening, you know? And I think that sometimes we get this idea, we read these stories about these awakening experiences of different monks and we think, you know, that was it, you know, they had to be with that teacher or they had to hear that pebble on that particular bamboo. But these awakenings really come as a result of everything that's come to us up until then. And this woman sort of was one of the many steps in his process of waking up and uh, long time was able to sort of finish it off. And I really see Deshan as very much like us. Um, he lives in his world of thoughts and ideas and memories. He's constricted, right? These thoughts and ideas are interfering with his spontaneous action. They're creating the illusion of a separate self for him. You know, I have these commentaries on the Diamond Sutra. And he thinks that these thoughts are real. He thinks it's true. He thinks it's what's happened. And not only that, he, he takes ownership of them. They, he thinks they're his thoughts, right? Just like, I remember my mother and I have these ideas about her and I have my whole history. I am Soshin. And so there's this separation that happens. And he's confused about the nature of time. And we see, I think this is one of the tricks about memories is that we forget that the memory is actually happening now. We think it's about something in the past, and we don't realize that the past has become the present, is the present, and is the future. We don't see that relationship. We see these, uh, these, these things as sort of fixed points. And so within this container of these memories, um, we have feelings that come up. And grief is one of the experiences, uh, one of the ways that we kind of grasp reality at this moment. So it's a story from the past and it's something that's happening in the present. This is the present. And the past mind is not independent of the future mind. And that's what 
Tokusan couldn't remember in that moment. They're all connected through this relationship through us, right? And when we grasp at something, when we cling to it, that inhibits our action. And, you know, another way that we uh, grasp or cling is sort of holding on to that moment of grief, right? And just like in the precepts where we say, well, we're not going to indulge in anger, we can't really indulge in any of the, the emotions that come up. These things arise, they have their moment in our bodies, in our minds, in our hearts, we cry, we laugh, we feel sad, we feel disappointed. We don't indulge them and then we kind of release them. So to close, I just wanna bring us back to that egg, you know, which reminds us that all of this is part of us and all of this, our grief, our memories, our thoughts, our hopes, our dreams, they're all part of the supreme meal we're cooking together, right? This is what we use to engage with our life. We're all the bodhisattva egg. We take our memories and our thoughts and our joys and our griefs out into the world. So I wanna share with you a poem um, by Derek Walcott. It's called Love After Love. The time will come when with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back to your heart, to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes, Peel your own image from the mirror, sit, feast on your life.